with me to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be looking at chapter 12, the first four verses. I want to warn you ahead of time, this is, a, this is one of my favorites in Scripture. It's one of my life verses, actually. And so it has been very hard to fit it into one sermon. So, it's going to be fit into two sermons. On January 14th, 2015, nearly after three weeks of exhausting and relentless climbing, Kevin Georgeson and Tommy Codwell reached the top of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. They made history as the first to free climb the Don Wall, a specific part of that cliff. They did it without using any aids and only ropes to secure themselves to the wall. At 3,000 feet high, the Don Wall had been considered by most of the climbing community around the world as impossible to free climb. For 19 days, they slept between climbing sessions in tents suspended hundreds of feet in the air. They repeated the same moves over and over again, trying to conquer the Don Wall's sheer cliffs. At one point, Georgeson repeatedly tried over a several-day period to make about a six-foot jump to another handhold. Over and over, they sliced their hands and fingers open on the razor-sharp rocks. Part of the reason the story gets so much attention, Georgeson said, is that people can relate to the climb. It's a big dream. It requires teamwork and determination and commitment. And those aren't climbing-specific attributes either, he says. Those are common to everybody, whether you're trying to write a book, climb a wall, or make it to the end of your Christian walk. Throughout our time in Hebrews, the author has been pretty crystal clear our Don Wall is the Christian life. The Christian life is full of difficulty. It requires community, the community of faith, teamwork, commitment, and perseverance over the long haul. And today we come to the author's concluding remarks on this perseverance. Look with me at chapter 12, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. 
Please pray with me. Father God, I pray the words of John the Baptist that you may grow greater and I lesser. Come forth and speak to your people. In Jesus' name, amen. It's really clear from verse 4, the last verse we read, that success in the Christian life is being faithful to the end. That's what he's saying. Success in the Christian life is being faithful all the way to the end. The crest of our Don Wall is death. Or as the metaphor that is used here and throughout Scripture, the end of the marathon race that is set before us is death. The goal of our faith is to be faithful to the end. That's the goal. Keep trusting Jesus to the end. Keep believing in Jesus to the end. Your goal is to be faithful to the end. As Eugene Peterson's book title so aptly put it, it's a long obedience in the same direction, right? On Martin Luther's deathbed, his friend, his good friend, Justice Jonas, asked him, he whispered in his ear, Martin, do you want to stand firm in Christ and the doctrines you have taught? This is on his deathbed. And Martin Luther whispered, yes. And his last words were, we are beggars. It is true. He got it all the way to the end. And that's what the author again and again is encouraging us in the book of Hebrews. It's the end. It's not how you start. It's not how you run. It's the end. You have to do all that to the end. True, authentic, spiritual regeneration endures to the end. Let me say that again. True, authentic, spiritual regeneration endures to the end. We are his house, if indeed we hold fast, the Hebrews, the author to the Hebrews wrote in chapter 3. We are his house, if we endure to the end. A little later on in that same chapter, he writes, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence to the end. That's the proof. And the author goes on in, in chapter 3, in chapter 6, in chapter 10, he goes on to give some pretty dire warnings to people, to us, not to give up, right? Some of the scariest scriptures in all the Bible are here in Hebrews. The point he has made is anyone can confess faith. Anyone. Anyone can say, I believe in Jesus alone for my salvation. Anyone can say that. Do you realize that, brothers and sisters? Anybody can say that. But the Bible tells us over and over and over again there are evidences that that is actually an authentic confession. I mean, one of the evidences is, is a changed heart. Your heart actually changes. It goes from, it says, the, the, the scriptural metaphor is from stone to flesh. Meaning your desires change. Meaning that you begin to, to love the things that Christ loves and hate the things that Christ hates like the sin that so easily entangles us. And that heart change is seen in your life through 
the fruit in your life, right? That's the second evidence of true regeneration. You start doing things differently. Slowly, progressively, you're caring more, you're serving more, you're giving more, you're loving more. I mean, just look over your shoulder, brother and sister. Are you a more loving person than you were 10 years ago? Actually examine that. That's important. The third evidence of genuine salvation in Hebrews that Hebrews has been pressing into for 11 chapters is you persevere to the end. It might look like a graph of the Dow Jones Industrial Average over the last 100 years, up and down, up and down, up and down, but the trajectory is up, and it ends with it going up. And here the author gives us three encouragements on how to persevere. He's been, he's been saying this is, this is critical, but now he says, here's, here's some helps on that. How do you persevere over the long haul? And the first thing he says is look back. First thing, he, the, the help he gives us by application is look back. That's Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight. He goes on. We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. There is the help. We are to look back to persevere to the end. Twenty years ago, I was given a a picture by my mother-in-law as I was going into ministry, and it hangs over my desk, and it's of a preacher preaching like this. And then behind him are all these, the uh, several of the saints that we have read about in Hebrews 11. I mean, behind him, there's a shepherd boy, David, sitting on a, or holding on to a crook. Moses is, is clutching the Ten Commandments. There's a man in a white beard that I assume is, is Abraham. Another man clutching a few scrolls, we're not told, but I think that that is Samuel. Then there's a man that's holding a net. I've never been able to figure that one out. I think it's Noah, but I don't know why he's clutching a net, but there he is. And then there's Jesus with his hand on the preacher's shoulder praying for him. And below the picture is written Hebrews 12.1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. I think the message is clear what, what this picture is trying to convey. The cloud of past faithful witnesses is, is praying for the man's preaching. It's praying for the man to persevere in ministry. Now, that's a really nice sentiment. It really is. And I love the sentiment that my mother-in-law gave me. And I take it to heart. I don't think that's what this verse is talking about. The cloud of witnesses is not praying for me. Jesus is, we are told that in Hebrews. But the cloud of witnesses is not. Nor is it saying that they're, they're standing around heaven looking at us. That's what I used to think years ago in my youth when I used to read this. 
that, and it put incredible pressure on me that all these amazing people are watching me. No, what Hebrews 12.1 is telling us is that when we become discouraged, and we do, when we become faint-hearted, when we become apathetic to the Christian walk, when we begin to grow weary in our Christian lives, when, when life gets tough, when, when it presses in so hard that, that the thought that goes through my mind, I'll confess, is that why am I doing this? This is hard. When those things happen, we're to look back and gain encouragement of what God, how faithful God has been in the people in the past and that he will be faithful with us. We're to look back at Enoch who lived in a, in a godless age, much like the age and probably worse than we're living in, but who endured to the end. We're to look back at, at Moses who had a pretty hard life, two-thirds, who endured to the end. God buried him. What a wonderful picture that is. We were to look back at Abraham, who we, we spent a lot of time on in the last couple of weeks, seeing him stumble, 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 but stumbling forward to the end. And how encouraging that was in our own walk. This cloud of witnesses in, in this chapter 11 were to look back on and to gain courage, some, some resolve, some boldness to go forward in our own Christian walks. We all know WD-40, right? Everybody has a can of that hanging around somewhere. Researchers were trying to find a formula to reduce friction by displacing water. Water displacement, WD. Anybody know what the 40 stands for? Yeah, 39 times they failed. The 40th time they succeeded. And so they named it WD-40. They named the product as a reminder of their perseverance. They didn't quit. They didn't give up. They may have stumbled 39 times, but they kept going, and they finally found the formula. That's what Hebrews 12.1 is saying when it says, therefore, there's this great cloud of witnesses. We're to look back and see their faithfulness. They endured to the end. All those people endured to the end. When your feet grow weary from running the Christian walk, go to Hebrews 11. Read Hebrews 11 over and over and over again. And just meditate on it. Think about those people, what they went through. It's amazing. And keep climbing your dawn wall. The second encouragement we're told here is not just to look back, but also to look at yourself. So Hebrews 12, verse 1, contains two of the three that we're supposed to do. One is to look back at Hebrews 11. But then the author is saying, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, look at yourself. Examine yourself. He writes, let us lay aside every weight 
in the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You know, sometimes in the Christian life, our lack of passion for Christ, there's a temptation to give up. It's not because of external circumstances sometimes. Sometimes it is. I mean, certainly that's the case of the audience that the writer of Hebrews is writing to. They were under intense persecution under the emperor Nero. They, they, were, they were about to lose their lives, and that's why he wrote this external circumstances, keep persevering. Sometimes that's our, our lives too. There's external circumstances. They're just pressing in. But sometimes it's on the inside. And that's what the author is pointing to here. It's because of us. And we're encouraged to examine our lives in two ways, two respects. First, examine for any sin in your life. Examine yourself for any known sin in your life. Look again at verse 1. It says, lay aside the sin which clings so closely. Sometimes you and I are lukewarm in our Christian passion because of sin in our life. Stuart Oliott wrote, Do not think you can hold on to anything you know is sinful and at the same time run the race well. That is true. That is biblical. Let me read that again. Do not think you can hold on to anything you know is sinful and at the same time run the race well. Unrepentant known sin in a believer's life causes not only spiritual weariness, but sometimes it shipwrecks your faith. Like a marathoner wearing heavy steel-toed construction boots to run 26 miles. He straps those babies on and he starts running. After a mile, his legs just feel like lead, right? Two miles, three miles, he starts slowing down. By mile 15 or or 16, he's done. Now, there are many sins that cling so closely we can't even see them. And you know what? That's why God has given us his word, which will reveal that, and the community of faith that will help us in that. Sometimes you and I have blind spots that everybody else is going, you know, Blake should really know this about himself. But if you don't tell me, how do I know? Sometimes it's clinging so closely, you can't see it. You know, we watched Star Wars uh, Empire Strikes Back a couple weeks ago with our kids. Remember how Han Solo gets away from from one of those destroyers? He flies right at it, and then he clings right to the side of it. Do you remember that? And they go, where'd he go? Where'd he go? He's clinging so closely they can't see him. That's sometimes how sin is in our life. And praise God for the word of God that has power to reveal that. But praise God for the community of faith that hopefully, if you love me enough, you will come to me. So sometimes there is that sin that, that we don't see and by God's grace is revealed. But, but many times, brothers and sisters, there's a sin 
that you know that you just keep on doing, that you just hold on to, that, that you say, no, you allow it to remain in your life. I had my, our office manager, Dory, print off a list of 256 sins, I think, I found. A list, you know, you find lists on the internet. And I just went through them, thinking of my own life. Do I have any of these sins? Do I know about these sins? I mean, I'm just going to give you several. Do we allow to remain in our lives gossip? Do we allow to remain in our life laziness, idleness? How about pride? Do we allow that to remain? How about idolatries? Any of the idolatries? How about bitterness? Do we allow bitterness to remain? What about coarse language? Do we still want to be one of the guys? What about negativity? Do we allow negativity to remain in our life? Or pornography? Do we allow that to remain? Anger. Do we just say, you know, I'm a guy? How about resentment? Do we allow resentment of your spouse, of your parents to remain? Do we allow these and other things to remain in our life? Do we allow a little yeast to remain? Because if you do, you can't expect to run the race well. You just can't. In his book, Overcoming Sin and Temptation, Puritan John Owen writes six side effects of sin that we allow to remain in our lives. He says, first, it deters our spiritual walk. He writes, it steals the time, attention, and affection, love, that we need to maintain our communion with God. Secondly, he says, sin deprives us of spiritual strength. He writes, every unmortified sin will do two things. It will weaken your passion for Christ, and deprive you of comfort and peace. You want passion for Christ? You want the peace that passes all understanding? Third, he says it weakens the soul. Here, Owen says, sin weakens our desire for duties. And by duties, he means the disciplines of the faith. Are you apathetic about the word of God? Do you have trouble getting into God's word every day or consistently? Is it hard for you to pray? Do you have no discipline to pray? Maybe, maybe there's some sin in your life. Fourthly, he says, sin becomes the meditation of our minds. Sin, when gone untouched, own rights, it becomes the meditation of our hearts taking the place of where God should fill. Your mind can become so consumed with bitterness that that's all you think about. Have you ever known a bitter person? That's all, that's, that's what they do. They churn in bitterness. 
Fifth, it darkens the soul, he says. It is a thick cloud that spreads itself over the face of the soul and intercepts all the beams of God's love and favor. In other words, sin inhibits your communication with God. Do you feel as if God never hears you? Perhaps there's some sin in your life. Sixthly, he says, sin slowly becomes the delight of our heart. How sad is that? That's where it ends. You delight in gossip more than Christ. You delight in bitterness more than Christ. You delight in that resentment more than Christ. That's why Owen writes, be killing sin or to be killing you. That's why Hebrews says, lay it aside, throw it off, get rid of it, because it entangles and ensnares you. If you're growing weary and faint-hearted, if you're in a dry season, if you're thinking that the Christian life really is an add-on and not central in your life, perhaps there is sin in your life that you need to kill. Perhaps there's something known that you need by God's help and by help of the community of faith to really mortify in order to grow, in order to keep on running, in order to take off those construction boots. But that's just the one that everybody shakes their head at. Yeah, I get that, Pastor. Yeah, sin, bad. I know it. You know, I've been a Christian 40 years, got that. I think that there's, a, there's another one here that we don't shake our head at so much. The Hebrew writer of the Hebrew says, let us also lay aside every weight. Sin we get. What's he saying about here? Every weight. NIV says, translates this, let us throw off everything that hinders. We're to get rid of hindrances too. The Pacific... Coast, the Crest Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, is the West Coast answer to the Appalachian Trail, right? The Appalachian Trail is the best, of course. They answered with the Pacific Crest Trail. I had friends who got married about um, well, 15, 16 years ago now, and for their honeymoon, they hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. Not my idea of a honeymoon, but theirs, they love this, okay? And so they spent months planning for their wedding and planning and training and gearing up for this six-month hike on the Pacific Crest Trail. I remember talking to them leading up to the hike about the gear they were planning on taking. And they, they were incredibly discriminating on what they were taking, they, they, you know, I'd ask them and they'd say, nope, not taking it. Nope. You know, things that I'd say, yeah, you have to take. Nope, not taking that. It, it weighs, they'd say. It weighs. It weighs. All the way down to like ounces. They had their backpacks down to ounces. They didn't take many things that would have helped them, I thought. Made their hike, their honeymoon hike, more comfortable. They didn't take it. They didn't take many things that on, the, on their journey in the backpack that would have made it more enjoyable. They didn't take a lot of really good things because they knew it would have slowed them down. It would have made the 2,600-mile hike 
more difficult. It would have hindered their progress. And that's what Hebrews is saying here. Sometimes even good things can become spiritual hindrances in our effort to run the Christian race. Think of the metaphor of the marathon runner, which is really what's brought to bear here. Water is really good for a runner. But you never see a marathon runner running with water. Never. It's a hindrance. Now they get it along the way, but it's a hindrance. They're not going to carry it. I would imagine that in, in the 19 days of climbing El Capitan, there, there were many good things that they would have loved to have had. But they were climbing a 3,000-foot granite face, and they couldn't take any extra weight. It's the same with our spiritual climb. There are many things that aren't bad. There are many things that, that aren't sinful, but that are hindrances to us. There, there are some things that are even good that can become hindrances to us. Your job. This is the obvious one, right? Men? Your job can become a hindrance to your spiritual walk. It's a good thing. But if it takes you away, if you can't do th- certain things because of your job, it's a hindrance. You, gotta, you have to examine that closely. A hobby. Video games. It can become a hindrance spiritually. Leisurely activities or high school sports. Good things. It's just talking to the football coach or my son Jack and talking about how all the great qualities that, that on a football team, even a losing football team, are, are it's good. It's building character. But if it takes you away, it can become a hindrance. Maybe it's ambition. You know, I'm sure... Tommy Caldwell, if he was a born-again believer, I have no idea, but if he was a born-again believer and, and, and he was listening to this sermon, that ambition, if it was hindering his spiritual walk, he should give up that ambition. Dreams can become hindrances. The American dream of retirement can become an incredible hindrance to you, brothers and sisters. You've got to be, do that really wisely. I've seen many, many people shipwreck their faith on that dream. A friendship or a relationship can become a hindrance. They're good, but it can shipwreck your faith. Even theology can become a hindrance. What? Not theology. Just look at the liberal church. So concerned about getting having the right answer that they forget about their relationship with God. Sinclair Ferguson said, the wrong Bible question is to ask if these things are okay with me. Let me repeat that. The wrong Bible question is to ask if these things are okay for me. The right question is to ask, is there any of these in any way, hindering my relationship with Christ? That's the right biblical question to ask. 
Alistair Begg said it this way, Most are not impeded in our journey by sin. Most are impeded by the toleration of innocent, praiseworthy things that we have unwittingly allowed to divert us from the objective of finishing the race. Not because they're wrong, but because they're not best. He gives the example, and I enter this with fear and trembling. He gives the example of family. That's the example that he decided to use. Family. That's a good thing, right? God created family. He says, churches that claim they are family-centered churches are the wrong kind of church. He's right. The only kind of church is a Christ-centered church. He goes on to say, many excuses are given. We can't come to worship because of family. We're too involved. We can't be too involved in the church because of my family. Does the Bible hold up the family as good? Absolutely. But consider what Jesus says. You want to follow me? You have to hate your father and mother and brother and sister. Hyperbole? Sure, to some degree. But he says, tell that to the Muslim who converts to Christ, gives up his family. He concludes by saying, we are so in danger of becoming preoccupied with good and praiseworthy things that we can't run the race marked out for us well. Wow. Brothers and sisters, this is hard. But this is critical if you want to run the race well. We all know sin impedes and kills, but have you ever really considered what's hindering your walk. Throwing off those good and praiseworthy things for the sake of the race, for the sake of Christ. Taking off those construction boots for the sake of running well. If you want to crest your dawn wall, if you want to run the race well, we must learn to examine our lives more conspicuously in this area. More soberly, too for anything that hinders even good things. So look back, look at yourself, look back, but the author here says, finally, look at Christ. This has been called the all-purpose Christian advice right here. Right here, the all-purpose Christian advice. If there's an open secret that we need to hear again and again, it is look to Christ. Look at Christ. Now, next week, I'm going to unpack this deeper. We're going to spend some time on this. But for this week, I want us to look at verse 3 and how it's displayed in the Lord's table. Verse 3 says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Have you ever wondered why Jesus said, Do this until I come back. Do this every time the word is preached until I come back. Have you ever thought about that? It's to help us endure. This table is to help us in our race. It's to help us in the discipline 
of look at Christ. Each week when we break the bread and drink together, we're to consider Christ's endurance. That's one of the aspects of the Lord's table. One of the aspects is to help us look to Christ. Consider his constant battle with sin throughout his whole life as you take. His constant battle with sin throughout his whole life. As we struggle with sin, we have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. He has. Isn't that cool? Consider how Christ endured the pain and suffering of the cross as we break the bread. Each time you are in pain and suffering, look at Christ. Remember what Christ went through for you. I just sent an email off to a woman who is suffering with a terrible toothache in our body. And I wrote to her, every time you feel pain, help it to remind you of what Christ went through so that you could be his daughter. He loves you. That's looking to Christ. Consider Christ's rejection by God. That's what happened at the cross. You know, when one, one of you rejects me, it hurts. And I go through, you know, anger. And I go through weeping. But if I went home one day and Carrie met me at the door and said, I no longer want to be married to you. That's a whole other level of rejection. That's what Christ went through. For you. Look to Christ. Consider his death. When we take that cup today, consider his blood spilt. He was willing to endure the penalty of death, shedding his blood to the end for us. He was willing to die so that we might live. Consider Christ's resurrection. He conquered the curse of death. He didn't remain dead. He rose from the dead, bodily, physically. He's the only one who has been risen from the dead who stayed alive forever. If you're here today and you believe what I just said, if you trust in that, his work and not your own, you're a born-again believer. And this table is open to you. This is a table that should encourage you today to keep on keeping on. But if you're here today and you don't know Christ, if, if the gospel that I just explained to you about his life substitutionary death and resurrection, if, if, if you're not wholly grasping onto that for salvation alone, or if, or if it didn't make much sense to you, I'd encourage you to come and talk to me or, or one of the elders. But I would also encourage you not to take the Lord's Supper. 
Because there's a warning that comes in 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul is talking to the Corinthian church and he says, listen, if you don't eat the bread or drink the wine in an unworthy manner, meaning you don't understand what this means. Otherwise, you're eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. So I'd encourage you not, not to take. Don't re- put out of your mind the, the peer pressure, the silly social stuff that we have here. Don't take this if you're not a Christian. But if you are, this will help you in your walk. This will nourish you to finish strong. Elders, please come up.